Welcome back to the Pod of DC. I'm your host, Rick Bernstein. I hope you're having a fine, fine day. We are kicking off 2021 with a conversation with David Daniel, a former colleague and friend who has a heart of gold and a great personality to boot. We share a few laughs and get right into his journey from small town Arkansas to dedicating his life towards supporting mission-driven healthcare organizations. We talk healthcare, philanthropy, early 90s Razorback basketball, and lessons as a dad he's learned embracing his kids' joy and helping build their resiliency. So here's David Daniel. Enjoy. Having a forename and a surname that could get mixed up. <laughs> What's that been like growing up? See, I grew up basically going by my middle name and a nickname of my middle name, okay. which puts me two steps behind the eight ball. Uh-huh. What's it like getting those flip-flopped and how often does that happen? It happens once a day at least. So as many emails <laughs> and voice messages as I leave, I invariably get at least one return a day that says, thank you, thank you so much, Daniel. And I forget how young I was when I no longer noticed it. It's going to happen. It's not going to stop. I just roll with it because it really doesn't, it doesn't hurt my feelings one bit. It's an innocent mistake, but I always thought I would try to make it as easy as possible for my kids. And so what, what I did was the very first kid I had, I named her Olivia Grace and she goes by Gracie. And that just, that creates so many, so much confusion, especially as you start trying to fill out college applications Mm -hmm. and loan applications so, yeah, I made the exact same mistake and did the same thing to my kid. You've spent your time in the Midwest, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you'd say pretty much the central part of, of the country. Mm-hmm. What's it like engaging with customers on uh, different coasts and all around? Man, folks ain't different. Uh, there's there's little differences. There's some cultural differences and whatnot. But by and large, people are people. They want to they connect. They want to have friends. They want to be understood. And as a vendor to these guys, they want somebody who can solve problems or at least make their life easier. If you present yourself that way, we're all the same. That's kind of gotten lost in this whole probably last few decades, but certainly mm-hmm. it's been on overdrive the last couple of years. Yep. Why there has to be a difference. Why is there differences between urban and rural and East Coast, West Coast, Central? At the end of the day, I think we all want the same things. We all have more things in common than we don't. If you If you set in on a half dozen of my calls. The common thread is, is I'm going to start off with how are things where you are right now because we're in healthcare. I ask a lot about how are you guys coping with COVID? I was talking to a hospital in New York City and it's kind of a community hospital. So they're kind of a catch-all for so much of what's going on right now, especially in this second wave of the pandemic. And we talked about how is it juggling the needs, getting the day-to-day done, but at the same time, you've layered on this pandemic that takes all the resources and they need to upgrade and they got to find budget for it because other things don't stop. But, you know, those are things that we all see and we all feel that's not unique. How did you land in healthcare? I mean, you graduated from University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, mm-hmm. mid-90s, right? And you got your master's there too, both your, your undergrad and master's in communications. Right. It's funny because as I listen to the other folks who talk on your podcast, and they're folks that are endlessly fascinating, each one's got a different story. And as I was kind of thinking about what would what would be my story and, and kind of what's my turning point? What is the catalyst that kind of changed everything? And that is exactly the answer to your question is how did I land in healthcare? At the age of 26, I'd reached a kind of a personal and a professional dead end. I'd just gotten my master's and was working for the world's largest retailer in Bentonville, Arkansas, and I was in their information systems division. I was an um, admin assistant to a team of developers who were actually working on something called point of sale. I was a year in, hadn't used a day of vacation that was not going to roll over. And so I was at a meeting one day and, and this acquaintance of mine, a guy I didn't even know, stood up and talked about this organization that he volunteered for. 
It was called Camp Dream Street. We've all seen them. They're camps for kids with life-threatening illnesses, cancer and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he volunteered there and he said it was a life-changing experience for him. And I had this vacation that I wasn't going to use. After the meeting, I pulled him aside and I said, Richard, tell me something. Do you guys need counselors? And he said, yeah, man, we, we need counselors bad, especially males. And so I told him, I said, you know, I'd be interested. Tell me more. So single, dead-end job, not a lot going on. It was the most transformative event I have ever experienced in my life. It was something that I did because partly because of the vacation thing I talked about. But a few years earlier, my father had had cancer and he came through it. I was a senior in high school and my parents spent a lot of time two hours away at the nearest hospital while my dad was getting treatment. Our community, our little community in South Arkansas, really rallied behind me. I was there home alone a lot. Folks showed up and did my laundry while I was at Mm -hmm. school. Meals were sitting on the stove with heating instructions. And a community really got behind me. And that was part of the reason why I sought out Richard, because I wanted to do something that paid it forward that had been done to me many years ago. And so that was part of my driving force. But, you know, back to that week, everything changed. How I looked at life, how I looked at what I had to give. And someone on Wednesday that week, a lady named Bernie pulled me aside and she said, you're wasting your gifts in retail. And she goes, find what you love. When I got back to Walmart, I may have worked another week before I turned in my resignation. I said, you know, I've just got to, I've got to fulfill myself. And what fulfills me is using my gifts to help someone else. I packed up everything I own, which wasn't very much. I moved to Little Rock because Little Rock had the state's largest hospital and it also had an academic med center. And I thought, you know, I can't operate on people. I can't go to med school. I can't do doctor stuff, but I can talk and I can write and I can encourage people to join us and to join our mission in finding cures, easing people's burdens, easing people's pains, basically camped out at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences until they hired me in their fundraising department. I came on as a grant writer. And from there, I've always tried to serve the either the nonprofit sector or the healthcare sector in doing the things that I do best, which is tell stories and, and engage people and get them excited and, and help find solutions. And so long-winded answer. That's how I ended up in in healthcare. What I find interesting about your background too is just you've served so many roles within philanthropy. You were an executive director of a hospice foundation. What brought you over there? Going back to that decision to become part of that Camp Dream Street in 97 and making that outward expression, everything began to change and everything good that happened to my life from rekindling an old relationship with the person who eventually became my wife and the things that happened afterwards. For 10 years at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, I lived my life really trying to see how much good I could put out there. And after 10 years there, I was getting close to 40, and I was thinking, you know, I got to get into my peak earning times, and I've got to really start cashing in. It was one time I made a decision. I took a job in Memphis, Tennessee, really based on title and salary, And went over there and it was as bad a fit as it could have ever been. Wanted desperately to get back to Little Rock and out of that situation. And as fate would have it, uh, Arkansas Hospice Executive Director opened up. The gentleman that was the CEO of the organization at the time, he was just such a kind and gentle soul and was so committed to their mission. At that point in time, I'd never had a hospice experience in my own family or in my own life. He taught me what true selfless love and care could look like and how hospice does that. And I wanted to be a part of that. It allowed me to have a part in delivering that 
that mission to my community that I came to love and just cherish what hospice does for families in a time when they need comfort, they need answers, they need direction. That's a time in my life that will that I'll always treasure. That executive director role is pretty much a CEO role, the way that you oversee the daily operations of the foundation, you develop the fundraising strategies and manage the finances and the budgeting. And was that just kind of like a a second master's experience for you, managing so many things and the hiring and firing of staff and creating a culture and all of that? It was a great learning experience that you've got to deliver the mission. You've got to give the resources. You've got to secure the resources within the community. So there's that building relationships But then among all the things that you talked about, then layer on the fact that I reported to our foundation board and to our chair, that was an education in and of itself because, you know, you want to go into something thinking that the the mission is central and it's core to everything. And it is, but then there's also personalities and politics that if you're not already very skilled in it, you can make some missteps and you can, with the best intentions, get down some paths that that you don't want to get down. So yeah, it was a great learning experience and it served me well in the time that I was there, but also in roles beyond that. What do you think might be misunderstood about it from a for-profit lens? The biggest misconception is that, and I don't know another way to say it except that it's a it's a soft profession akin to entertainment or party planning. And nothing could be further from the truth. When we were mates at the software company that served the nonprofit sector, you know, the thing that is crystal clear is the people that we worked with, by and large, that ran our products at their nonprofits, they were professionals. They were professionals with metrics. They had developed best practices. They shared those best practices in a number of ways. These are highly intelligent, highly motivated people who do a really good job. And I I saw it firsthand. I was in a meeting the first time at the organization that I worked at in Kansas City. I sat in a a facilities planning meeting as the representative from the foundation. And we asked the question, how much of your facilities budget does philanthropy need to secure for the coming year? And he said, oh, don't worry about it. You guys just plan your parties and be pretty. Hmm. That's not an uncommon perception we put just as much thought and professionalism into our work as anyone does. Reports as of about 2018, over $400 billion were given by individuals and bequests and foundations and corporations to U.S. charities. (laughs) I mean, this is not small change here, people. What's something you think that these organizations, these charitable organizations could maybe do a little bit better? You get hit up with the Giving Tuesday movement, which I kind of have my own thoughts on that back in November. And so it's top of mind. And then I feel like it kind of goes away a little bit. It whittles away and we get a few little touches in the mail from a few organizations we've given to. What could organizations be doing better at this time? The one thing that I would say, I'm not going to say it rubs me the wrong way because I get it, because a lot of times people say that the fundraising, especially this time of year with your annual gifts, is a numbers game. You got to get X number of asks out there if you're going to get a return at 20 to 30%. But for me, I think a lot of folks are going at it with that kind of shotgun approach and seeing how many ass they can get out there mm-hmm. just to get the numbers up is not doing their brand or their relationship building any favors. And I, and I think about the ones that every time I open up my email, I've got something from them and not just your quarterly or monthly newsletter, but it's 
always something. There's this, it's not just a drip. It's, it's, you know, the faucet is on. I understand the philosophy behind it, but those that are targeted, there are products out there now. There are services that can give you analytics and they don't cost a whole lot. They can give you analytics into your donors and into the folks that aren't your donors yet that you can leverage that information to do much more intelligent and targeted communications to your people. You know, when I feel like I'm part of a mailing list that gets the same boilerplate, I'm much less likely to engage. And I know everything can't be handwritten personal notes on the scale that many of these organizations operate, but you can still take steps to down that path to make things a little more personal or pick and choose your times to communicate. And I think that's one of the things that the nonprofits can do is to be a lot more strategic about who, how, and when they engage. It's fair to say it's that Pareto rule of 80-20. 80% of your time is really focused on that 20%. In the for-profit world, that seems to be an approach Mm -hmm. that certainly organizations who are trying to hit their numbers and grow as an organization, should nonprofits think the same way? They absolutely should. You know, a lot of the drivers in fundraising are the same drivers in in sales. And you never make the mistake of saying this client or this customer or this donor is more important than anyone else. But at the same time, when you're looking at where you're going to put your resources, where you're going to invest your relational capital, you have to focus on those that you know are going to give you the greatest return on, on that investment. Exactly. And cultivate that relationship. So it takes time. Exactly. So what was your headspace before your life changed that summer in 97 at Camp Dream Street? Growing up, small town, population, I don't know, ten to 12,000 down there in Camden, Arkansas. Yeah. What was that like growing up, uh, where you did, and family and community around you? You've begun to paint a picture. It's that almost Norman Rockwell. There was one plant in the city. Um, it was an international paper mm-hmm. company. It was a mill there in town that employed a good chunk of the folks. And then everyone else in the town lived off of some spoke of that, be it the doctors or the lawyers or the, like my father was the assistant superintendent of schools Mm. there. That plant was the lifeblood of that community. And in many ways, it was a Rockwellian upraising, even through the the mid to late eighties. I graduated with 99 other people. We had a (laughs) hundred folks in our graduating class and we knew everybody. We knew everybody's parents. We knew how to get to everyone's house on a BMX bicycle mm. if we had to. We spent a lot of time kicking the can and, and playing kickball in the streets or, or spotlight tag. and All of those things that that you know paint that that rural life picture. And so, heck, we had uh, the rival school across town from us. They even got out on the first day of deer season every year because they knew there wouldn't have enough people to even come to school. <laughs> so we were, we, we were that small and rural. And, and so many of the people that, that I graduated with, I still keep up with today and not just Facebook wise, but true friendships that, you know, in Arkansas, especially in South Arkansas, where I was, I was equidistant from the University of Arkansas, which is up in the Northwest corner of the state and LSU. Folks from my high school went all directions, which I don't think is that uncommon, especially for folks like you on the East Coast, where they go to Richmond and JMU and all points in between. A good portion of the folks that grew up in my hometown, even even to this day, end up going to the University of Arkansas. It's kind of the big dog in the state. And so, you know, folks that I started first grade with, I walked the stage 
1993 with my bachelor's from the University of Arkansas. A bunch of them I walked with. So we all, we were always tight knit, you know, formed lifelong friendships. If you're not into sports and you, you grow up where you grew up and you got LSU and Arkansas right there and you're not into baseball and these football programs, you had quite a run when you were there in the mid nineties as well in basketball. What do you, what do you do? <laughs> you, that you go to games. I'll tell you what, there was nothing like it. So when I got there in the fall of 89, the football team won the Southwest conference and we played Tennessee in the cotton bowl in the spring my freshman year, we went to the final four in Denver. So that was a, that was a pretty heady time to be at Arkansas, the 89, 90 season. And then just four years later, we went and won the national championship. Uh, that town at that time was absolutely mm. bonkers over that basketball program. And it was fun because Arkansas didn't have any pro teams. They just hang on everything that happens at the university. And when, and when things are going well, it's a really heady place to be. And so all of my undergrad, we played in Barnhill Arena, which uh, held 9,400 people. And it was a bandbox and it was tiny and it was loud and it was claustrophobic and it was wonderful. And then we doubled the size of it and went to the 20,000 seat Budwalt Arena in the 93-94 season, which was the year we won the national championship. What was great about that was Barnhill Arena with 9,000 seats had a waiting list of about 20,000 people. And when we opened Bub Walton Arena that doubled the size, the waiting list also doubled. There were still 20,000 people wow. waiting to get tickets. That's how popular it was back then. I love that 94 team beating Duke there in the final. Yeah, that was nice, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, 72. Was, <laughs> 76, 72 in Charlotte of yep. all places. I mean, this was a home court advantage for Duke and me being a big Carolina fan, as we've probably talked about in the past. Now, you broke my heart the next year beating us in the Final Four in 95 out uh -huh. there in Seattle. Was Montreal uh, still on that team? No. So he no, had gone. He had, he, had, he had gone, but Stackhouse, yeah. Wallace. I mean, you know, we had Donald Williams just raining threes. But, I mean, you guys had that nucleus, Scotty Thurman, Corliss Williamson. I mean, what a run in basketball. I mean, that is right at the tail end of your time there at the university. You know, we trailed off. Nolan actually kind of trailed off there. Um, 96 was our last Sweet 16. So 97, 98, mm -hmm. 99, we didn't go past the first round of the tournament. And we still finished the 90s with, it's either the second or the third most wins in the decade. So got the momentum going from... 87 to 2000, we were certainly among the top echelon of teams. It was Duke, Carolina, Kentucky, Arkansas. Um, I know UCLA popped us in 95, and I blame Missouri for that because they didn't stop Tyus Edney on the drive coast to coast with four <laughs> seconds right. left. Just kills me. But anyway... Yep, that's right. I mean, that was just brutal. I know those couple of years were just heartaches. I mean, Carolina won in '93, uh -huh. and they and then come back there in the Final Four in '95. I will say, you know, Stackhouse got injured early in that '95 Final Four game against Arkansas, probably like within the first twenty seconds or so. Seventy-five, sixty-eight was the score of that game. That's kind of etched in my yeah. mind. Yeah, like that seventy-six, seventy-two. Yeah, one was. and that was one right where where Arkansas kept threatening to to blow it open, but just couldn't shake them, right? I mean, it, it, it was down to the last minute or so before it was settled. 
just thinking about the parody that we grew up with being a sports fan like yeah. you are right and you got the cowboys i know that's your your pro yeah. team your nfl team right I, yeah. I i guess geographically i mean you got the saints not too far mm-hmm. away what why why the cowboys over the saints for two reasons actually geographically dallas was just a hair closer than new orleans to my hometown and if you remember at the time cbs had all of the nfc games so when i would get up on sundays and go to watch the nfl games we got dallas Roger Staubach, Drew Pearson, mm-hmm. Tuta Jones, mm-hmm. Tony Dorsett, all those guys, Everson Walls, um, Charlie Waters, just the teams that were just iconic. And we got them every Sunday. And the Saints, if you recall, didn't have a winning season until <laughs> the, the, the late Thanks. 90s. And so right. you certainly didn't have a Sunday ticket. You didn't have anything. So those being two NFC teams, we always got the national game, which was the Cowboys. So we never saw the Saints. I don't know how or why the Saints be, kind of became my 1B team. Uh, I love the Saints. I I like, mm. I always liked them and I still do. I think Drew Brees is probably one of the, he's certainly not underrated, but he's one of the guys that you, I've always just loved to watch. I, I like the geography and the the way that the TV windows worked in South Arkansas. You just got the Cowboys. Growing up here, we we had a uh, WGN out of Chicago. I grew up with Cubs games yeah. here in Virginia. Yeah. We'd always have that Cubs game on, and I, I I didn't go so far as to to being a Cubs fan myself, but I could see how that exposure to whatever's on TV. Obviously, the Redskins right here, and I had the Orioles, mm-hmm. so I was kind of taken for those sports. But um, yeah, those Cubs, and and I know people right here around the DC area who are big Cubs fans, exactly yeah. for that reason, the same same reason that you described. Well, when you think about it, and it's not unlike. Camden, Arkansas, in that when you were growing up, yeah, you had the O's. And I guess the O's were, I mean, they were outside the Beltway, but they were still probably the Beltway's team at that time. You know, you were more susceptible, I guess, to a national team like the uh, Cubs or the Braves. Now, my grandfather was a Cardinals fan. And and the reason for that was in Little Rock, they had the Cardinals AA affiliate, the Arkansas Travelers. Um, There's an AM out of St. Louis that after dark broadcast that covered most of the central United States. And so my grandfather could sit in his scout in his driveway after the sun went down in the summertime and listen to the Cardinals games. And that's how so many people in our area became Cardinals fans was because that was the only AM station they could get at Mm -hmm. nighttime when the games were broadcasting. Were you active with sports growing up, parks and recreation or middle school, high school? Yeah, all the way. I played some form of organized sport from the from the moment that I was old enough to do it. You know, it was baseball, mm-hmm. basketball in the wintertime, track and field in the spring. I swam all summer long. I swam on a bunch of swim teams, played a lot of golf in high school. I played I played football in eighth grade and in ninth grade, the last game of the season, we were playing our crosstown rivals and I went up, I was playing defense. I was with a cornerback on the right side and I went up to tackle this kid on a sweep. And he hit me right under my chin and snapped my head back and broke cervical vertebrae number three. And so I was airlifted, you know, helicopter came and got me. I was airlifted to Little Rock, spent 12 months in a halo vest and got all healed up, but virtually ended my football career, obviously. Had more time for non-contact sports like golf. What if your kids weren't into sports? What if your son wasn't and he just didn't gravitate towards that ball? Where do you see yourself now, you think? Fast forward and what, about he's about 15 or so? Yep, he's 16, just turned 16. I would be invested in whatever he's invested in. I, I learned that 
I also have a daughter. She's a sophomore at the University of Arkansas. We started her in soccer, some little golf clinics. None of those stuck. And she was just in love with dancing. So, you know, I became a dance mom. Just as excited about all of that. Oh, I get. I want to see you. <laughs> I want to see you on the sideline for yeah. one of those. No, but that's oh, that's, that's the deal. And and you know, you're you're a dad. You're a papa. You know, seeing your mm-hmm. kids in their element, happy and competent, and doing something that they're good at and they love it. There's nothing more, mm-hmm. man. I it, it could be dancing. It could be it could be needlepoint. I don't care. It's 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 fun to see your kids thrive. There's something about the structure of these activities that say so much. And obviously, I mean, without even getting into the sportsmanship and learning to win, learning to lose yep. and, and appreciating both sides of it. You had a big birthday this year. Yeah, We won't say what that was, No, we won't do that. but <laughs> as a parent 15 years ago, actually your daughter's older, right? Yeah. So 20, 20 years ago. let's say about 20 years ago versus somebody who to me now I'm going kind of through that development stage where we're still experimenting a little bit. What have you learned about yourself as a parent or or advice would you give someone like myself between now and kind of where you're at in life, where they're now transitioning into college or becoming young adults? Funny thing, you brought up a memory that I'd forgotten. You know, I said I wasn't a baseball guy and I can remember my wife and me in Little Rock. We didn't have kids. We had probably just gone downtown to one of the pubs and and, and hit a happy hour. This was in the summertime because I remember it was warm. And we were driving back towards our house and the the route that we took, took us past the big baseball complex in Little Rock. And it was dusty and it was hot. And there were kids of all sizes and shapes out there and parents huddled under umbrellas and (laughs) watching their kids. And we had this smug look like, we'll never do that. Look at those poor saps. We'll never do that. And fast forward 12, 15 years, and that is absolutely us. And we could not be happier. I think the Mm. the great thing about our kids is no matter what we envision or that we plan out, they throw us a curveball. They do what they're going to do. And it goes back to embracing their joy, um, making their joy, making their accomplishments and their failures your own. And I want Chris to succeed and I want Gracie to succeed in, in everything that they do. But I don't shy away or back away from those moments where they need either they need picked up or they need to be allowed to pick themselves up. I love that part of being there for them and being their support system because there's so much you talked about it earlier. Learn how to lose. There's so much in there to to watch them deal with whatever situation they're faced with. And I'll tell you the other thing that I did not know until I watched it firsthand is that they are so much better equipped to deal with those things than we ever gave them credit for. You know, your Mm. first instinct is to jump down there and and give them a hand up or even stop them from falling. And if you resist that urge and let them take a moment and gather themselves, they'll, they'll astonish you. That's a good tip to keep in the back of my mind too, because it is still, even at this age, you do, you want to jump in. I'm just thinking about that 99 person high school that you grew up in and you kick the can down the road and hopscotch and (laughs) spotlight tag and those sorts of things, right? I mean, when we were coming up and you and I have the same generation, and this is really a a podcast focused on that Gen X period, we had that built-in resiliency. You know, we might've been viewed as slackers in some way because we had video games and we had a, a few things that maybe our parents, our baby boom and and silent generation parents didn't have. But we built that resiliency. 
And that's something that I do worry about. I worry about it, not only in myself, just keeping myself at bay, but also things like technology that are doing things for them. You know, they're finding a date for them. They're finding <laughs> a job for them. They're finding things, which might not be a, such a bad thing, actually, uh, as long as they're out of the house. Right. Um, this this whole thing about moving back in with the parents after uh, college, I know a lot of it is financially driven. What, where do you stand on that? I, my, my X number of years of wisdom tell me, tells me never say never. What you would love, the ideal would be that they come out of college with the goals and the tools to go out and make it and stand up and, and do what they had to do. But I'll tell you, that summer of 97, I was 26 years old and my parents were still making my car payment, paying for my car insurance because that um, that admin job at the world's largest retailer um, wasn't going to cover everything. I had two degrees and I, I had a work ethic and didn't consider myself a failure, but certainly I, I wasn't fully off the launch pad yet. I, I think that's going to continue to be a reality, especially as we, we look at what a post-pandemic world is going to look like economically in the job market. So- yeah. I, it's just, there's so many unknowns right now. You'd like to think that they're going to come out of school equipped and employed and ready to stand on their own. But I think you also have to provide at least some sort of reassurances that they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get turned out and, and never have a chance to, to fully separate and be, and gain that independence. They may need a nudge. Yeah. All for that. Well, you and I had met, we were colleagues. We, we met right here in DC the first time mm -hmm. uh, when we had a meeting for uh, the technology company that we worked for. And immediately I was drawn to you and I could just tell that you had that heart and what a match you were for what you were doing. And, uh, and then just come to learn to find out your background in philanthropy, serving customers, which you continue to do and, and look after their best interests and want them to continue to succeed and have the right mindset and thinking of it as a business and, and staying ahead of the game and making sure the mission is sustained. It's been about three years now, which is not a, a long time in the grand scheme of things, but I definitely feel like we, we bonded pretty quickly. Likewise, you know, we've known each other for three years, but it does, it feels like a lifetime. And I feel, feel like you've been somebody that's, that I've always known. And I feel like I've known you a lot better here in your podcast. I love to hear, hear you talk to other folks because it gives me a, a great window into you and your makeup. And I always believe that you're a, a makeup of the people that either choose to be around you or you mm -hmm. choose to have around you. From listening to your podcast, you've been surrounded by some amazing people, and I can see why. So, oh man, I've appreciated the chance to be on here with you as well. Well, I really appreciate that. There's so many stories to get out, and that's what we really want to do is just just get people's stories out there. You don't have to be a celebrity. You don't have to make the national news. You don't have to sit in a high office to have an incredible story and thoughts to share. And so that's what we're trying to do. So uh, I had you top of mind uh, from the rip. So, All right, man. but anyway, man. Well, really, really appreciate it. David. <laughs> you got and, it. Uh, yeah. And thanks for listening to the pod of DC. I'm your host, Rick Bernstein. And we'll talk soon.